God, I, I just want to acknowledge, and, and even on behalf of, of those who are gathered here to worship you, those are, who are gathered here to hear from you, even maybe those who, who don't know quite why they're here. God, we know that you have brought them here, but, but maybe just listen and, and, and exploring and, and examining uh, the claims of Christ. God, on behalf of all of those, I just want to acknowledge that, that this message might be a little difficult this morning. That this is not an easy heart attitude to face for, for any of us, speaker included. And so, Jesus, as I talk through this text, God, as, um, as we talk together about this new lesson from the life of David, Spirit of God, would you speak? Convict, draw us near, change us by your grace. In Christ's name, amen. Well, for those of you who have been walking with us through this series this summer, you know that the sermon uh, series this summer is called A King and a Kingdom, Lessons from the Life of David. And when we found David, he was about 12 years old and he was defeating a giant named Goliath. And we learned about what it means to conquer those enemies in our life that feel unconquerable. We, talk, we took a look at the life of Saul, the king that preceded David and Israel and the mistakes that he made and the jealousy that gripped his heart. And we learned about that green-eyed monster called jealousy and what to do to push back against it. We learned about God's holiness last week and we've learned about leadership. We've learned about all these lessons from the life of David. And unfortunately, last week, our hero, King David, made a drastic life-altering, disastrous error that absolutely changed his life. And what we talked about last week was it wasn't just this one big decision, this one big temptation that David gave into. What we did is we kind of tracked back and we said, there were a lot of little decisions that David made. He decided to stay in Jerusalem or he decided to be up on his roof by himself or he decided not to call others into his life for accountability. And he made a series of small decisions so that when he got to that big temptation, it was on almost as if he couldn't say no. And what we established last week is that I am the sum total of all my little decisions. The, the big decisions, yeah, the, the, those, are, those are a big deal. Uh, they have big consequences, but it's really all the small decisions that add up and make those big decisions so difficult to walk with God when we haven't learned to do so in the little things. And so the big, disastrous, life-altering, destructive choice that David made was this. He slept with another man's wife and he got her pregnant. And then when he couldn't figure out how to hide his sin, how to sweep it under the rug, how to conceal it, here's what David did. He, he, he set uh, the woman's husband up to be killed. Her husband was named Uriah. It was one of David's most faithful and loyal soldiers. And David said this to the army, to the general. He said, go up to the side of the city and, and when the battle is, is most heated, when it's most difficult, everybody draw back. And he knew that Uriah wouldn't draw back. He was too brave. He was too loyal. He was too courageous. He was too faithful. And he stayed up at the side of the city. And Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, was killed by the sword of the Ammonites because David was too ashamed, too afraid, too much of a coward to come clean with his own sin. 
So here's the lesson we're looking at today. Here's the lesson we're looking at today. What am I supposed to do when I mess up? Because last week we looked at the life of David and we said, we don't want to behave like that. We would rather not have affairs and we would rather not have people killed. All right. So we're going to learn from that and learn that we're the sum total of all our little choices. And we're not going to do that. We're going to make little choices, good godly choices in the little things that add up to the big things. But when we mess up, and that's a when, not an if. When we mess up like David did, what does God require of us? What does God call us to when we kind of bite the dust a little bit in our Christian life? Because just like David, David knew God. David walked with God. David had been blessed by God and he was about 50 years old when this happened. He had been walking with God for a very long time. He had experienced the faithfulness of God and the blessing of God for a very long time and he made a radical life-altering decision when he had an affair and really committed murder. And and so what we're going to learn from David today is finally, after a year of time, after a year of concealing, after a year of secrecy, David finally does what God requires when it comes to messing up. So we're going to ask ourselves this morning, what does God require of me? What can I learn from David when I mess up, when I sin, when my life kind of gets off track? What does God require of me? Here's what I know about us. Here's what I know about you and me. And the reason I know this about you and me is because I know this about me. More often than not, I would rather not do what God requires me to do when I mess up. I would rather not do that. Here's what I really want. I want a clear conscience. That's what I want. And I want to get there however I can get there. And and here's three ways I can get there. Here's three ways I can live with a clear conscience. One, if I don't have a conscience at all, I can live with a clear conscience. But those people are certifiable. There's There's a clinical disorder. That, 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 so we all have a conscience. So, so option number two, if I want to live with a clear conscience, option number two is this. I never do say, think, or feel anything that violates my conscience. But we do things all the time that violate our conscience. Sometimes they're willful, deliberate, and premeditated. <laughs> And sometimes they're accidental. And we go, man, I shouldn't have said that. I feel guilty. Something weighs on my conscience. But, but we all do those things. So option number three, if we want to live with a clear conscience, option number three is the only option we have. And that's we need something to clear our conscience for us. We need something to clear our conscience for us. And because we're not really interested in doing what God wants us to do when we mess up, what we do is we've created a version of God that helps us live with a clear conscience. Here's what I mean by that. Just about every religious system has a way set up where we can outsmart God. I'm not kidding. It's absolutely true. Moralism says if I do more things than more, more good things than bad things, if, if the scales kind of tilt towards good things rather than bad things, I've kind of outsmarted God and I can live with a clear conscience. Or for those of you who are, are Catholic uh, friends, you, you grew up in a system, or maybe you're still part of a system, you're visiting today, where you go to a priest and confess and they say, say some Hail Marys and say some Our Fathers and do penance, and, and then your conscience will 
will be clear. And I'm not saying evangelical Christians are any better because here's the version of God that we've created that will help us live with a clear conscience. It's not really what God wants us to do. It's not really what he requires us to do when we mess up. It's the version of God that we've created so that we can feel as if we live with a clear conscience. And here it is. The Etch-A-Sketch God. (laughs) Everybody knows what Etch-A-Sketch is? Raise your hand if you know what this is. Very cool. Raise your hand if you don't know what this is. Okay, very cool. Got it. Got some young people, some foreign-born folks. That's awesome. Right, that's awesome. Okay, so I grew up with one of these things. Many of you grew up with one of these things. So here's what an Etch-A-Sketch is. Think about it as an analog iPad, all right? This is the original iPad. And, and what you've got here is a, is a clean blank slate. And inside that blank slate is a little dot. And every time I move this knob, the dot goes side to side and it makes a line. And every time I move this dot, the dot goes, or move this knob, the dot goes up and down and it makes a line. So I've just kind of drawn an X there in the middle. And if I move them at the same time, it'll go at an angle and it'll do loop-de-loops and all this stuff. I want you to know that while I'm looking at you, uh, moving these around, both these knobs at the same time, I'm literally writing my name in cursive in a beautiful calligraphy. (laughs) That's not true. So so for those of you that know Etch-A-Sketch, you know, if you were drawing on an Etch-A-Sketch and everything was going okay, and then your line kind of deviated, your line kind of went off track, you did something that you didn't intend to do, what do you do with an Etch-A-Sketch when you mess up? You shake it. You shake it. And there's some sand in there, and it clears up all the lines that you just made, and you just start from the beginning again. And you start twisting knobs. This, This is what we've created with God. This is the system that we've created with God. And and here's how that works. I'm drawing my line and my day. And at some point in my day, my line goes off track. I lust. I gossip. I create division in the body of Christ. I'm hard-hearted. I'm jealous. I don't trust God like the gospel choir sang for us this morning. And then I go to God at night and I say, oh God, I feel heavy hearted. I I feel guilty. I feel ashamed for what I did. Would you just shake up my life and make my bad decisions go away? And then tomorrow morning, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pick up the Etch-A-Sketch that is my life and I'm going to draw the same lines the exact same way again. And then I'll come back to you again and you just shake up my life, clear up my conscience, and I'll live guilt-free. But I won't ever really have to change because I come to you in confession. I come to you and I, and I say, yeah, I agree. My line deviated. I messed up. Just shake it up. Make it go away. Forget my sin. And, and people have even twisted scriptures and say, oh, God forgets your sin. God forgets your sin. That, that, that scripture is warped. That's not what the Bible really said. God, God doesn't just go, oh, I totally forgot that you did that. Isn't that weird? I just flaked it. Because you came to me and you said my line deviated. I shook it up. I erased your sin. I erased all the consequences. I, I erased any the implications that you had to live with. And I've totally forgotten about it just because, just because you agree. See, those who live in that Etch-A-Sketch God mentality, those who have created that Etch-A-Sketch God and and interact with that version of God that isn't biblical, here's what you're going to see in your life. 
you're going to see, number one, a refusal to forgive others. You'll see a refusal to forgive others because, listen, when you go to God and you confess your sin to him, you're not looking for forgiveness. You're looking for a clear conscience so you can continue to behave the same way. That's different. So if you don't think you need forgiveness from God, you don't think you need forgiveness from others, why would you extend forgiveness to others? The second thing that you're going to show, see show up in your life if you're living in this etch-a-sketch God mentality is an ungrateful heart. Those who live in this etch-a-sketch God mentality, they, they just use God as a conscience sweeper, as, as an etch-a-sketch, just shake it up. They, they have ungrateful hearts because here's why. I just shake that little etch-a-sketch and everything goes away. It's real easy. So if I go to God and I confess my sin and I believe that it's easy for God, that it didn't cost him that much, why would I be grateful for what he's done? The third thing that you'll see in your life, if you're living in this etch-a-sketch God mentality, is a lot of secrecy. You'll see a lot of secrecy. Because if my sin is just between me and God and I come to him and I tell him and there's no expectation that I would change, no expectation that I would do something different, no expectation that my motivation and my heart's desires would be different, transformed by the grace of God, I'm going to hold those things secret and I'm not going to share them with anybody else. Here's the thing. We... Will you put all, all three of those things up? Refusal to forgive others, ungrateful heart, and secrecy. I, I want you to know that if you're playing the Etch-A-Sketch God game and you're just using him to clear your conscience, at the end of the day, just wipe my conscience clean of all the things that I did, said, or thought that, that don't match your deal for me, God. And, and, and what you see in your life show up is a refusal to forgive others, an ungrateful heart, and a lot of secrecy. I want you to know that there's not any hope here. There's not much hope here because God's grace is a forgiving grace. But listen close. It's also a transforming grace. So if my life hasn't shifted, if my patterns haven't changed, if I still have hard heartedness, if I still have a lack of gratitude, secrecy, fear, shame, how do I know if God's transforming grace has really taken hold? And we trick ourselves all the time and say, I've done what God requires me to do. I've messed up and I've done what God has required me to do because I feel real bad about it. I feel very, very guilty about it. But just because you feel guilty doesn't mean you've made it right. Just because you feel guilty doesn't mean that you and I have actually done what God requires. The second way we fool ourselves is this. We say, well, I've told God. I've confessed it to God. I've come to say, I agree. I drank too much. I agree. I blew up at my kids in anger. I agree with you, God. And then we're just kind of cool and we walk away from it. Just because we've confessed it to God doesn't mean we've done what God requires. And David has been playing this game for about a year. He's committed adultery with Bathsheba. Bathsheba. He, he's, he's killed Uriah or set him up to be killed by the Ammonites. And for a year, he's been playing this game. And we're going to see every one of those characteristics show up in the life of David. We're going to see a refusal to forgive others show up. 
We're going to see an ungrateful heart show up and we're going to see secrecy show up. And before we get to our passage today, I'm going I'm to point you to Psalm 32. You don't have to open your Bibles. It's up here on the screen and we'll get to our passage here in a minute. But I'll point to Psalm 32 just so you know that David does feel guilty for his sin. David does confess to God. He does agree with God about his sin. But he still, listen, he still has not done what God requires him to do. Look at Psalm 32. It says this. It says, For when I kept silent... My bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. David wrote this psalm after the fact. He he wrote this psalm years potentially after he truly repented. And he's writing about that year in between sin and repentance, in between sin and change, in between sin and doing what God called him to do. And he said, look, I, I did feel guilty through my groaning all day long. Your hand was heavy upon me. But what does he say? For when I kept silent. See the secrecy already? He still hasn't done what God has required him to do. He, he feels guilty. He's, he's told God. And a lot of us will tell ourselves the same thing. Well, I feel real bad. And, and I've told God, so my conscience is clear. And God's going, yeah, but I'm not an etch sketch. I'm calling you to do something different when you mess up. So here's the question. What is that different thing that God is calling us to do? What is God calling us to do when we mess up? What does God require us to do when our line deviates from the line that he's foreordained for us from his plan? And here it is. It's a, it's a big church word and it's scary for a lot of us, but I want you to know this is what the Bible says. This is what scripture says. Here, here's the word, repentance. It's, re, it's repentance. And it's different than feeling sorry. It's different than feeling guilty. It's different than even agreeing with God that I messed up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I come to you and say, oh, here, yeah, I messed up. Look, my line deviated. I get it. It's, it's different than that. It's, it's really more than that. Check, check this out. This will blow your mind. That word repentance in the Old Testament, it's used more of God than it is of man. Does that blow your mind? Repentance is used more of God than it is of man. So, so listen close. If God can repent, it doesn't mean he feels sorry for sin, right? Because God doesn't sin. God doesn't feel guilty for sin. What can God do? God can change his course of action. God can change his course of action. So listen, when Jonah goes to tell the Ninevites that they need to change, and they do, it says that God repents. God changes his course of action. God had intended to do this. Now he changes and he does this. So when the Bible says to us, when you sin, repent, what it's telling us to do is change our course of action. Check that out. It's not so much about feeling guilty. It's not so much about coming to God and telling him I messed up, although that's part of it. But, but it's about repentance. Genuine confession, 
leads to genuine life change. A change in a course of action. That word repentance in the scripture means, it literally means a change of mind. A change in the whole personality from one course of action to another. It's not about feeling sorry. It's about a turning around. So in the New Testament, when the Bible says metanoeo, which is the New Testament word for repentance, the Greek word for repentance, typically it's translated to convert. Literally to to turn around. To, to do different, to think different, to behave different. And, and this is it. It's to be changed. That's what God calls us to when we mess up. And, and what David's been doing is he's, he's been playing the Etch-a-Sketch God game. Just trying to shake it up. Just trying to you know, feel guilty and come to God and confess. And so he shakes up my conscience and clears my conscience. But David hasn't done what God really requires him to do, which is Repentance. Let's, let's put it this way. Confession says this to God. Okay, you caught me. Okay, you caught me. It's like you walk in and your kid's hand is in the cookie jar and they've got three different color markers in the other hand and they're drawing on the wall while they're stuffing cookies down their mouth, right? And you come in and you go, what is going on? And they say, nothing. And then they finally go, all right, you caught me. You caught me. This is confession. You caught me. I agree with you. I messed up. I shouldn't have marked on the wall. I shouldn't have lusted after that woman. I shouldn't have taken a cookie. I shouldn't have blown up in anger. I shouldn't have cut corners in my business. I shouldn't have whatever. Okay, you caught me. That's confession. But true confession, genuine confession, leads to genuine repentance. And repentance says this, I surrender, now change me. This is the shift. This is the change that David undergoes when God's prophet Nathan comes to him. Because here's the deal with God. Uh, We don't want to face our own stuff most of the time. You know, nobody wants a selfie of their sin. Nobody wants a selfie of the ways that they've messed up. We don't want to face our own stuff. But God, in his grace, because he has life-transforming grace for you and for me, he, he wants us to come face-to-face with our stuff, to really own it. And in David's case, after a year, after a year, God sends his prophet Nathan. God sends his prophet Nathan to confront David on his sin. And watch this. We're going to see all of the characteristics of the Etch-A-Sketch God game show up in the life of David. Every one of them. Secrecy, ungrateful heart, refusal to forgive others, it's all there. 2 Samuel chapter 12. If you've got your Bibles, open them up. 2 Samuel chapter 12. If you don't have your Bibles, that's all right. The scripture will be up here on the screen. There it is. We're going to start in verse 1. You can also use your, you know, your iPad or your phone or whatever you want to do to track along with us. And God, here's the deal. Here's the, here's the background. Here's the context. Uh, David has committed this sin with Bathsheba. He's got her pregnant and he set up her husband to be killed in order to conceal his sin. And a year later, a year after living in secrecy, after feeling guilty and confessing it to God, God sends his prophet Nathan to speak truth and say, I, I know you've done this stuff, but that's not what God requires. God requires repentance. God requires, I surrender. Now change me. Second Samuel chapter 12, verse one says this. It says, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. He, that's Nathan, came to him, that's David, and said, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. 
The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but this one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Stop there. This is the story that Nathan tells David. He says there's two men in a town, a rich man and a poor man. And the poor man had one little ewe lamb, just one small female lamb. And the rich man had all the flocks and herds in the world. And when a traveler showed up, and Middle Eastern culture says when a traveler shows up, you feed him, you give him a place to stay. The rich man, the Bible says, was unwilling. He was hard-hearted. He dug his heels in and he refused to take one of his own flocks or herds. And he took the one little ewe lamb that the poor man had. You know what I think of when I read this story? I think of my little dog, Misha. She's not really that little. She's 80 pounds of lap dog, but that's beside the point. She's like seven years old. She's Weimaraner. I've told you guys about her before, but she's, she, we got her when she was eight weeks old. And she sleeps in bed with me when Amy's out of town. Like when I'm done eating at the table, I always save her just like a little morsel of food. Amy does the same thing. I would say we love that little dog like a daughter. I realize it's warped. I realize it's messed up, but that's beside the point, all right? Here in a couple weeks, we're going to adopt and everything's going to change. But for now, that little dog is like my daughter, sleeps in bed with me, and, and she will grow up with my children. I love that little dog. Could you imagine someone who had all the flocks and herds in the world? And instead of wanting to kill one of their own, they come and take my dog and kill it and roast it and serve it. It's like a pet. She is a pet. And, and, and in this case, the, 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 the ewe lamb was a pet to this man. And the rich man was unwilling to take one of his own. Pick it up in verse 5. It says, Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. First characteristic of an Etch-a-Sketch God heart. Do you remember? First characteristic, refusal to forgive others. Refusal to forgive others. I want you to know that Exodus chapter 22 says this. If you take a lamb from someone that's not your own and if you kill it and eat it and kill it and serve it or whatever else, how do you repay them? You repay them with four lambs. That's the penalty. That's the punishment. You take a lamb that's not yours, kill it, eat it. You repay them with four lambs. The scripture does not say that man deserves to die. But what does David say? That man deserves to die. That's not what the scripture says. That's not what the Old Testament law says. That's not the penalty for taking a lamb. But David is so caught up in his own sin and he's not experienced God's forgiveness. He's not really come clean. He's not really repented. He's not really experiencing a life change. So he digs his heels in and he says, kill him. That's what he deserves. Refusal to forgive others because all David wants is a clean conscience. He doesn't really want to be changed. 
Pick it up in verse 7. It says, Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and Judah, and if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. What's Nathan saying to David? God gave you all of these things. God, I anointed you, he says, God says to David. I gave you, God says to David. And if you needed more, I would have given you more. You are what? Ungrateful. You have yet to plumb the depths of God's blessing for you. And the reason that you've sinned and you continue to play the etch-a-sketch God game, not really doing what God requires it's because you've got an ungrateful heart, characteristic number two. Characteristic number two of a person that plays the etch-a-sketch God game. Pick it up in verse nine. Characteristic number three, do we remember what it is? Refusal to forgive others. Ungratefulness, secrecy. Listen, verse nine. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You, David, have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife, that's Bathsheba, to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. Listen close. For you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. Not only did David commit his sin in secret, but he held his sin secret for a year. He tucked it in the folds of his own heart. And he would go to God and he would say, your hand is heavy upon me. I know I'm guilty, but, but I'm still tucking it away like we saw in Psalm 32. I'm still holding it in. I'm still keeping it secret. I've never really told anybody about it. I've just told you and I'd really rather not feel bad anymore. Please just shake up my life and erase the lines that I messed up royally. But I don't really want to do what you want me to do. And God says, you did it in secret and you've been keeping it secret. David is playing the etch-a-sketch God game. But when he's confronted with his sin, when he comes face to face with God's prophet Nathan, when Nathan tells him this story and he says those four little three-letter words, you are the man. All of a sudden, David's heart changes. And it's far more about doing what God requires than just having a clean conscience so he can go on living just as he is. Look at verse 13. It says, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, listen close, these words of life, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. For the man who took one, one little ewe lamb, his penalty was four lambs in return. 
For the man who commits adultery and murder, the penalty is death. According to Old Testament law, that's what David was facing, was death. And yet Nathan, on God's behalf, God's prophet, speaks those words of life. The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. The penalty that you earned for yourself, according to Old Testament law, the sin that you committed has caused death to fall on you, but God has put away your sin. You shall not die. Why? Because David moved from playing the Etch-a-Sketch God game to doing exactly what God requires when we mess up. We're going to talk about exactly what that is, but, but before we get there, Wouldn't you love to hear those words? Wouldn't you love to hear those words of hope today? For those maybe who have never met Jesus before. Even for those who have been walking with Jesus for a while. Even those who knew God just like David did. Those of you who have walked with him. And you know full well, even as I speak, that you've got a secret sin tucked away in your heart. You already feel the shame of it weighing on your soul. You already feel the secrecy and the guilt. You know something is tucked away in there that that you're taking money from somebody or you're cheating on your spouse or you've got a pornography habit that you can't kick or you've got an addiction that takes hold of you or you've got an anger problem or whatever it is because the line of your life has deviated from God's plan. Wouldn't you love to hear those words this morning? morning. I have put away your sin. You shall not die. So how in the world might we hear those words from the living God today? How in the world? What does God really require when we mess up? I find David fascinating because he was a musician as well as a warrior and a king and a leader and whatever else. And he wrote a book called Psalms. It's just a bunch of songs to God. And and he actually wrote a song about this very moment. This very moment when he transitioned from, okay, you caught me. I, I confess, I just want to tell God, I got, you know, just to have a clear conscience. When he transitioned into the, I surrender God, change me that moment of repentance, he actually wrote a song about it. It's Psalm 51. Psalm 51. And we're going to take four characteristics from Psalm 51 of the truly repentant heart. The heart that responds to what God requires when we mess up. Four characteristics from Psalm 51. It's the psalm that David wrote about this very moment. Flip over to the right just a few, few pages in your Bible. If you don't know how to find the Psalms, it would be, you know, if you hold your Bible like this and open right to the middle, those are the Psalms. We'll be in Psalm chapter 51. David starts this way. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. How do I do that? Verse 3, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. The first characteristic of the truly repentant heart is that I am real with myself. Did you hear what David said there in verse 3? 
For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Here's what we, here's what we tend to do when we go to God. We, we tend to go, God, I've, I've sinned. Uh, you know it. I know it. I did the sin, sinning, sin stuff. Uh, you know, I, I did something different than you wanted me to do. Or I know I'm a little goofy sometimes. Or I know I have attitudes that are wrong sometimes. And God, I just, would you cleanse me? Would you wash me? And David does something very, very different here. In Psalm 51, verse 3, he says, I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. He owns it. He gets real with himself. He points and says, I am an adulterer. I am a murderer. I am a liar and I am a thief. That is me. That is what I've done. I get real with myself. Men and women of God, that is absolutely step one in terms of the requirements that God has for us. For the truly repentant heart is that we get real with ourselves. I know that's tough. I know it's tough to to look into your own heart and say, this is me. This is, this, is, this is some funky stuff going on inside of me. I am messed up. I am wicked at times. I am a sinner. I know that's tough, but that's step one. Get real with yourself. Say, just as David did, for I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Characteristic number two of the truly repentant heart, verse four. David writes this, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. You see what he says to God there? He says, against you and you only have I sinned. And not only that, whatever consequences result from my sin, that's up to you. I'm not trying to escape that stuff. You are just in your judgment, God. You are justified in your words. You are blameless in whatever implications, whatever consequences I have to own. In other words, David gets real with God. That's characteristic number two of the truly repentant heart. I get real with God. This is where confession comes in. This is where genuine confession is the first step towards genuine repentance. It's not that confession doesn't mean anything. It's not that it's not important. It's not that you don't have to do it. But that's where we start when we get real with God. And we go to God and we say, I messed up. I face it. And I want to own it before you. The truly repentant heart gets real with God. Characteristic number three, verse 13. David writes, David writes this. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Now, now picture this. If David is teaching transgressors and sinners like you and me, if he's teaching them about God's mercy, about his unfailing love, about his faithfulness, about the fact that he can put away sins as crazy as adultery and murder and all the big and little stuff, he can put them away and say to you, you shall not die. I have put away your sin. I will teach them about those things. 
And then they say, how do you know? David has two options. One, I read about it on the internet. That's option one. Option two, I am an adulterer. I am a murderer. I am a liar. And the reason that I know God can put away those sins, the reason I can tell you transgressors and sinners about his mercy is because that is me. In other words, the truly repentant heart gets real with others. The truly repentant heart says this, I am real with others. What did James, the brother of Jesus, say? Confess your sins to one another so that you may be healed. Not confess your sins to yourself and make it in secret between you and God so that your conscience may be clear. Disclose it to someone else. Tell somebody, confess your sin to one another so that you may be healed. The interesting part about this interaction in 2 Samuel verse 12 is this is the first time that we know of that David came clean to somebody else. You hear it? It says, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. He had already said to God in Psalm 32, he'd already said to him, I feel heavy about it and I feel guilty about it and I shouldn't have done it. But he says something to Nathan. He comes clean to somebody else. Those of you who are familiar with, you know, AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, Cocaine Anonymous, all that stuff, you know the power of disclosing your own pain, your own shame, your own addiction to someone else. What do you start every Alcoholics Anonymous meeting with? Hello, my name is Luke, and I am an alcoholic, right? Those things have deviated from Christian principles, but AA, NACA, all that stuff, they were all based in Christian principles, founded in Christian principles. Confess your sins to whom? One another, so that you may be healed. The truly repentant heart says, I am real with others. Number four, look at Psalm 51, verse 17. It says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Anytime the scripture repeats a word once, twice, three times, it's really, really important and you should absolutely pay attention to it. What word does Psalm 51, verse 17 repeat? Broken. I just, that concept of brokenness. <laughs> Here's the great part. If you're here this morning and you're like, I don't belong in church, I'm broken. <laughs> Welcome to the place that you belong the most. It's in the arms of Jesus. Because what did he just say? A broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. The truly repentant, those who are truly experiencing the transforming grace of God, those who have done what God requires when they mess up, they can say this, I live broken. I live ever grateful. I live humble. 
I live knowing that I did not ever deserve God's forgiveness, but he has said to me, I have put away your sin. You shall not die. And I know I didn't deserve it. I didn't do enough good things. It's not because I got in my prayer closet and confessed it to him. I have said, this is me. And I'm broken before the Lord. These are the characteristics of a broken and contrite heart. These are the characteristics of those who are truly repentant. These are the characteristics, listen close, of the heart that's done what God requires when we mess up. When the line of our life deviates, it's not about coming before him and say, oh God, my little cosmic etch-a-sketch, shake up my life, erase what I've done, so I can do exactly the same thing tomorrow. It's about coming to God and saying, God, I know who I am. I know who you are. Here's where I'm at. I'm gonna tell somebody. It doesn't mean that you vomit emotionally on people. It doesn't mean that you tell one person everything you've ever done in your whole life. It means this, when I go to the grave, I don't wanna have any secrets. Take three or four people in my life, put them together. Those three or four people know everything about me. I have gotten real with others. I've confessed just like David did to Nathan. And now I live broken before the Lord and it makes me quick to forgive. I'm not living in secrecy and shame. It makes me grateful because listen close, I know that the forgiveness that God has extended to me was not easy. It wasn't just shake up my life and it goes away. It wasn't just a feather duster and it makes it go away. Here's what it was. It was him sending his only son, Jesus Christ, to go to the cross on your behalf. That was not easy. The sacrifice was the greatest sacrifice in the history of the world. And those who truly do what God requires get real with themselves. They get real with God. They get real with somebody else and they live humble, contrite, broken lives. And you know what happens? they experience God's life-transforming grace. I love the way that Romans chapter 3 says it. This is from the message version of the Bible. It's kind of a, a modern translation of the text. It's up here on the screen. It says this, Judgmental criticism of others is a well-known way of, ex- of escaping detection in your own crimes and misdemeanors. You hear David's judgmental criticism of the guy who took the lamb? But God isn't so easily diverted. He sees right through all such smoke screens and hold you to what you've done. I'm honest with myself. I'm honest with God. You didn't think, did you, that just by pointing your finger at others, you would distract God from seeing all your misdoings and coming down on you hard? Or did you think that because he's such a nice God, he'd let you off the hook? He's an etch-a-sketch and you shake him up? Better think this one through from the beginning. God is kind, but he's not soft. In kindness, he takes us firmly by the hand and leads us into a radical life change. The New International Version, the English Standard Version, probably many that you guys are reading, says this, God's kindness leads us to repentance. It's toward a radical life change. It's not that now now our behaviors change and now we've earned God's grace. It's that we've come to him and broken and contrite and say, oh God, this is me. This is who I am. I surrender. Change me. 
That's different than, okay, you caught me. It's I surrender. Change me. Couple kinds of folks in the room. One, you try to live this every day. You're working that motto into your life in any way, shape, or form, it'll fit. I surrender, change me. I surrender, God, change me in my marriage. I surrender, God, change me in my business. I surrender, God, change me in my spiritual life. I surrender, God, change me in my habits. I surrender, God, change me in my affections, that I would convert, that I would turn around, that I would experience radical life change. Praise God, keep it up. That's what he requires. Second kind of person. Maybe you're like David, Maybe you've been walking with God for a long time. Maybe you've known him since you were very young, like David did, at least by the time he was 12. And then he makes this radical, life-transforming, destructive error. And he's kept it secret. And maybe you've kept that sin of yours secret, that addiction, that lust, that anger problem, that jealousy, that envy, that gossip, that, that hard-heartedness towards God and others, that desire to have power and control. You've kept it secret and maybe you confess it to God and you try to just clear my conscience, clear my conscience and you go on living that exact same way, just like David did. Here's what God is inviting you to this morning. I surrender change me. Not just inviting, calling. And repentance, I want you to know, is only for the courageous. It's only for the courageous. Number three, the third kind of person in this room. Maybe you've never met God before, and maybe you feel the guilt and weight of your sin and conviction weighing heavy on your heart. And maybe you didn't even know that the, that the penalty that you earned for yourself, the wages that you've earned for yourself is eternal separation from God. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. Here's the gift of God. I have put away your sin. You shall not die. Just eyes at me. Listen close. If you have never met Jesus before, here's what you can hear this morning. I have put away your sin. Let that sink in. You shall not die. For the broken, for the contrite, for those who are real with themselves and real with me, my offer is an offer of radical saving grace and radical life transforming grace for those who do what God requires when we mess up. Would you just bow your heads with me and pray? Even if you're not kind of a praying person, just head, heads bowed and eyes closed, just, just get with God in the quietness of your own heart. Maybe you've never prayed before. And maybe you're ready today to trust in God's grace for the first time. Maybe you're ready today to face those words, you are the man. You are the woman.
Maybe you're ready for the first time to join with David and the chorus of others in the scripture and the chorus of others that surround you and say, I have sinned against the Lord. Maybe you're ready for the very first time to hear those words from God, I've put away your sin, you shall not die. If you're in that spot, it's a simple prayer. You don't have to pray it out loud. God knows what's in your heart. God knows what's in your mind. Simply coming to God and saying, I own my stuff. This is what I've done. This is what I've said. This is what I've thought. I know I've walked away from you. I know I've rebelled against you. I know, I know that I have run headlong in a direction that is opposite the direction you ran in. So God, I come clean with open hands and a broken and contrite heart. I trust in your grace. I say yes to that invitation. And I trust in Jesus' sacrifice that he took the death penalty that I owned for myself, that I earned for myself. He took that death penalty for me, and I say yes to him. If you prayed that prayer this morning, let me be the voice of God to you, just like Nathan was to David. God says this, I have put away your sin. I have put away your sin. You shall not die. And for the folks in the room that maybe you've walked with God for a while. Maybe you know God. Maybe you've met God. Maybe you've been blessed by God. But maybe you see in your heart ungratefulness. Maybe you see a resistance and a refusal to forgive others. Maybe you even see secrecy just like David experienced. God's calling you to the same today, to repent. To say to him, not, okay, you caught me, but God, I surrender, now change me. My sin is ever before me. I know who I am. I know what I've done. I know what I've thought, believed, said. I come clean before you, oh God. I want to get real with you. I commit today to getting real with someone in my life so I can experience your life-transforming grace. And let me just live broken before you. Just with heads bowed and eyes closed, if you've walked with God for a while, just, just if you would, even if you're not a praying person, just nobody looking around, just for the sake of confidentiality, if you've walked with God for a while, and you feel like, you know what, that's me. I needed to repent today. I've had this secret sin, and I've gotten real with myself. I've gotten real with God. I commit to getting real with somebody else so that I can experience life, God's life-transforming grace, not just that he's an etch-a-sketch and clears my conscience so that he could change me from the inside out. If that's you, if you prayed that prayer today, would you just slip your hand up for me so I can see you? Awesome. Great. Awesome. For those of you who have prayed that prayer for the very first time, that met Jesus today in a personal way and heard God say for the very first time, I have put away your sin, you shall not die. Would you just slip your hand up so I can see you? Be bold. There you go. Outstanding. 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 Praise God. Welcome to the family of God. God, we thank you today that you have put away our sin. God, we praise you today 
that we shall not die, but we shall live with you forever. God, we even thank you for these communion elements that we're going to partake, we're going to take together now. The bread and the cup that reminds us of the great price that you paid, the sacrifice that you made, so that you could say that to us. I have put away your sin and you shall not die.